Father, this day as we come into the presence of our Almighty King, who has come into our presence, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, by taking on flesh and being born, taking on our humanity as a human being, the second person of the Trinity, condescending, stooping low, taking on the burden of our redemption, being sacrificed in our place, the gifts of the Magi anticipating the work of the Messiah and the prophecies of those involved with these moments singing forth of your glory and majesty, including Mary, who herself said that she magnifies the Lord and her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. So we pray that our spirits and souls would magnify and rejoice in the hope of our salvation realized in Jesus Christ this day, because he has looked upon us, the humble, those of sinners in low estate, those with nothing to offer, those with nothing to give, those with nothing by which to save ourselves, lost in our trespasses and sins. But now we with her call ourselves blessed, for the mighty has done great things for us. By his holy name, Jesus Christ our Savior and his mercy is what we fear and where we place our hope. From generation to generation, he is ransoming a people for the praise of his name, gathering the elect in his holy church. By this and other means, he has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And he's exalted the weak, the lowly, the foolish of this world to be lifted up on high, to rule and reign with him. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our forefathers in the faith, even to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So we rejoice, Father, with the early saints who recognized the power and the glory of what you have done to accomplish redemption in history. This morning, as we turn to your word, I pray that you would open the pages of our heart and write upon them the glories of our eternal hope, that we would go from this place equipped to shine forth and tell the truth of Christ, risen and ascended, ruling, reigning, who once was a child, who once was hung on the cross of Calvary, as a sacrifice for sinners. It's in this holy and awesome name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. The morn this morning, the aim of my sermon is to follow the gaze of the psalmist in Psalm 123, turn there with me as you're able. And let us consider this song of ascent, Psalm 123, just four verses, but many connections to the rest of Scripture, including Advent itself, which means an anticipation or a waiting of an event of great significance. Sometimes, traditionally, this season is called Advent season for that reason. We remember and place ourselves in the shoes of those who awaited the coming Messiah. And now 2,000 years later, we recognize that he has come, but we also recognize that he is yet coming again. The gaze of those who waited for the Lord in Psalm 123, if they were to take these words to heart, would be directed far above the mere goings-on of this world to the place where God is enthroned, indeed, in the heavens. The title of this morning's message is Shepherd's Lament. That title, I trust, will make more sense, especially in closing of this message. Suffice it to say at the beginning, this is a fitting song, I submit, for a shepherd waiting on the fields outside Bethlehem for the coming of the Messiah to sing as he tended his flocks on that Christmas night. 
Would you stand as you're able out of reverence for the reading of God's Word? And behold, in your hearing today, this Psalm 123, the Holy Word of God, a song of ascents. Verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I submit there are Advent connections to Psalm 123, and I'll try to open and close our message referencing two of them at least today. It struck me as I was listening recently on my Bible app through the Old Testament that the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, both major and minor in fact, and especially the book of Lamentations written by the prophet Jeremiah, strike a mournful tone. The reader encounters a striking sadness as we go through the Old Testament in much of what is written there in the prophets. It colors so much of the waiting, if you will, or the early literature of the Bible. While, our hopeful, while hopeful in that the mercy of the Lord is where our author places his trust, Nevertheless, Psalm 123 also has this sad tone to it, I suggest. Our song today is another example of sorrow expressed in the biblical record. So this raises a question that might at first not occur to us if we were to write the Bible. Why are there sad songs in Scripture? What is the purpose of lament? Lament meaning a deep, sorrowful, anguish, cry. And this is actually a category or a genre of the Scripture's lament. Well, answers to these questions have been suggested in popular evangelical circles in recent years, and usually the context contains some sort of occasion for sorrow, like a social or a personal grief or trauma, like the death in, one, uh, death in one's family or uh, even justice concerns in culture. So in recent years, along these lines, lament has been reintroduced to the modern church as the language of Scripture for those who, quote, weep with those who weep, which is a biblical quote. We are to mourn with those who mourn. But is that a good definition and a good summary of why there are sad songs in Scripture? To give us language, to show empathy, to weep with those who weep? Is that as deep as lament goes? I suggest no. The heart of the prophets and the tone of Psalm 123 provide a much deeper context for the purpose of sad songs in Scripture, for the purpose of lament in Scripture. I submit that they express a profound anguish, not limited to our own human experiences, but an anguish that longs for the coming Messiah and with Him His great salvation. And saints, we ourselves echo their cries yet today as we await the second coming. And with the second coming, the reconciliation of all things according to the fullness of redemption. So let me propose a definition for lament and test this against your own study of Scripture and see if it holds up. What is lament? When the longing of our souls joins the groaning of all creation in anguish and faith 
that upon the coming day of the Lord, redemption will be complete. I'm going to read that to you again. While I'm doing so, you might turn to Romans 8. When the longing of our souls joins the groaning of all creation in anguish and faith upon the coming day in faith, that upon the coming day of the Lord, redemption will be complete. This is what it means to lament or to wait or to understand that there are yet things to be restored and to have a certain sorrow, yet also hopeful direction that they will be set in place. Romans 8, and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I submit to you that this is lament. And this is an aspect of waiting. And this is a sorrowful and mournful cry and yet faith-filled hope that helps us to understand the context and the heart of the author of Psalm 123. Let me give you three divisions of this short psalm. Three things poetically featured in Psalm 123. Number one, verse one, the highest appeal. The highest appeal, that is the throne of heaven, is pictured in verse one of Psalm 123. Secondly, a servant's perspective. Who makes this appeal? A servant, one who identifies as such in verse two. And thirdly, We'll close with our saving hope in verses 3 and 4. And in a word, that saving hope is mercy. Psalm 123 poetically features our highest appeal, a servant's perspective, and our saving hope, highest appeal. Turning again to this psalm, verse 1. To you, the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes. To who? You who are enthroned in the heavens. That language there indicates the highest place that he can make his request, that he can set his gaze, that he can establish his hope, that he can turn to in faith the highest appeal where? The throne, the throne room. He who is enthroned upon that place in heaven. Spurgeon comments on these first four Psalms of Ascent. And let me remind you, that's the passage or the section of the Psalter that we're in. And he notices, notices an ascending pattern in Psalm 120 through 124. We've referenced this in part, but just notice this in context again. In Psalm 120, the author there laments that he is distant from the place of God's reconciliation with the people of God at that time. He's not in Zion. No, he's on the outskirts, distant regions, Meshach and Kedar. But there's an ascendancy, if you will. There's a growing closer. There's an awaiting, an anticipation. There's a progress toward redemption. Psalm 121, he says, verse 1, the author, I lift my eyes up to the hills. That is to say, in the Psalms of Ascent, there's sort of an ascending hope from Meshach and Kedar to the hills. And then further still in Psalm 122, let's go to the house of the Lord, not just the hills, but the place of God meeting with man. There he finds himself, verse 2, standing in the gates of Jerusalem. So as we ascend this staircase, of God's provision, hope, and grow closer to that point of the fullness of redemption, the consummation of His kingdom. Psalm 123 opens saying, To you I lift my eyes, you who are enthroned in the heavens. So do you see, do you see that, that sort of ascending order? Spurgeon identifies that this, this song, Psalm 123, by a pattern of degrees, 
beginning with the first of the Psalms of Ascent, lamenting that distance from Zion, and then moving that casting of a hopeful gaze to the hills, and then entering into Jerusalem, and then today, this poetry ascending higher still into and unto the heavens. And so as we read and take in these songs, we, and so to speak poetically, if you will, are carried higher and higher by these ascending stairs, uh, stair steps to behold the beauty of salvation and the glory of the author of salvation. So in the Psalms of, the, of Ascent, we have the ascending eyes, if you will, the gaze of the author and the gaze following the author of all who sing this song sincerely to where our hope resides, to the place of heavenly majesty and rule to the heavenly throne. What is heavenly throne? What does this language indicate? Well, it indicates surpassing, eternal, and sufficient and omnipotent power. It is the ultimate seat of authority. <clears throat> we understand this seat of authority language if we study anything of history. If a king were to assume his position of rule and reign, there would be a location for that. There would be a capital city. Within that capital city, there would be a court. Within that court, there may be a palace. Within that palace, there might be a throne. There might be stair steps leading up to it and a gilded, majestic place for him to be seated. And when the king would take his seat to presume to rule, it would be one of ceremony and authority that would communicate through this symbolism his power and his will and his intentions and his law-making and law-enforcing authority. So he'd get, he would put on his crown, which symbolized those things, and his robes, which reminded him that he wasn't just one of the people, but he sat in judgment over them. And then he would sit down on this royal seat of authority. And when the king was there seated, the message was, you better listen, you better heed. This is the one to whom we owe our allegiance, the seat of authority. Where is the highest seat of authority? Now, today, there's many claims to seats of authority. And in our modern day, you know, the kingly throne of the ancient monarchs has been replaced with whatever bureaucracies or the United Nations or global summits or the elite class and so forth. These, by and large, are illegitimate seats of authority. Why and how do we know? Because they do not submit to the authority indeed over them. So whether we're here today recognizing that we can relate to the psalmist the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud in many ways is an oppressive force that we must reckon with and deal with in the sinful age in which we live. The question yet remains, well, if not these seats of authority, where do we cast our gaze? Where is our highest appeal to be directed? Well, the answer is the same as it was in the days when Psalm 123 was written. It is the heavenly throne. The heavenly throne is the seat of authority. That cannot be challenged, and that is overall. You see, God is with us. He is present. He is everywhere. So this psalm does not indicate that God is elsewhere and we are here. Instead, this psalm indicates that his seat of authority is unchallenged, transcendent over all, and cannot be assailed. What king can climb Jacob's ladder and remove Jesus Christ from his throne at the right hand of the Father? Zero. And they will die trying. And they will be dashed to pieces by the rod of iron and our Savior's mighty hand if they should try. There's great hope in Psalm 123, even for those who mourn in Zion, even those, for those who wait for the full manifest, manifestation of this king's great rule, because he knows 
that there is a high appeal to that true place of authority and that the heavenly throne represents this, this uh, truth that Christ reigns and he rules forever and ever. The prophets record heavenly throne visions from time to time. The one that comes to mind for me is Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. Without time to turn there this morning, you'll recall, this throne room is accompanied by special celestial beings, angels, with six wings that cry, holy, 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 without end. The train of the robe of the one who sits on the heavenly throne, so to speak, fills the temple. It's with reference to his works and exploits that are so vastly beyond our comprehension that they fill the universe with the testimony of his power. And so as Isaiah the prophet, the soon-to-be would-be prophet, is, encounters this vision of the heavenly throne, he is struck by his own unworthiness. And the overwhelming thought in his mind is, I don't deserve to be in the presence of this awesome holiness. Woe is me. And he recognizes that he is a sinner. And so at this heavenly throne, what do we see? We see eternal, surpassing, sufficient, omnipotent glory, and above all, a terrifying holiness. A holiness that the world needs to see, that they might repent. A holiness that we must remember, that we would walk in the fear and faithfulness of him. And this, again, is, the ga- is where the psalmist sets his gaze. To you I lift up my eyes, you who are enthroned in the heavens, the one whose train fills the temple, and before whom the angels cry holy. This impression and its implications upon Isaiah changed his whole life, called him to ministry, and set the course of his determination and ambitions and goals. He would preach the word of God without compromise, even if it was not received for the duration of his lifetime which he did. And then one day he was called home. He was ushered into the gates of glory by the Lord Almighty who sits on that heavenly throne, who declares his dominion over all of his saints such that they will rise from the dead and join him in that heavenly place one day. Think of covenant history. This highest appeal, we have noted the ascending eyes of the author. We've noted the significance of the authority claim and where the seat of authority is indeed in the heavens. But think also of the history of the covenant. Think of the history of the people of God. When were the times when God visited his people from on high? You might write that down. When did God visit his people from on high? You see, in the Psalms of Ascent, there's this upward orientation, right? It's symbolic language. It's directing our gaze, yes, to the seat of authority. But it's also crying out, please visit us from on high. This, this idea, this juxtaposition of, of location is significant all through the language of Scripture. We've, rec- we've uh, talked about how man's sort of aspirational desire to be lifted up from the lowly state of existence to a higher plane is represented even in his sin. It's this lament for what was lost in Eden and a desire to regain that place. The Scriptures say prophetically, actually, that Eden was on an elevated plane. And so there's this sense, even among sinners innately, that we are not all that we should be. And there, we need to rise above the limitations of our humanity. We need a hope. We need a future orientation. We need to be lifted from the state of lowliness and decrepit, we know, to be sinful conditions of humanity. We, we need to be, in other words, visited from on high. 
that he who yet inhabits those unreachable realms of glory would stoop low to us. When did God do this? Turn with me to Exodus 24. This would certainly be an example and a significant moment in the mind of the author as he writes. This is one of those Sinai encounters. Sinai was a mountain in the Old Testament. And an amazing visitation occurred at this location. In Exodus 24, we see some record of it. Then he said to Moses, that is, the Lord speaking to his prophet, servant, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nahab, Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules of all the people answered, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 5. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it on the basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Verse 9, Moses, Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. You see, what are we witnessing here in the scriptures? A visitation from on high. <clears throat> Excuse me, a mountain location. And upon it, the Lord revealing himself, taking a contingency representative from the people, and taking them up, and they witnessing some aspects of his glory. And then recording this vision in this incredible way. Verse 15, later, Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and that cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. In the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. <coughs> When Moses was visited on high, he came down with the word of God in hand. When Moses, a representative of the people, was visited from on high on Sinai, he came down with instructions for the tabernacle, the temple dwelling of God with man. This was a picture of Emmanuel. If God's presence would dwell in a if he would encamp with his people, then in a sense, at least symbolically, provisionally on the way, and in a real sense, in his Shekinah presence, God would be with them. This was a real moment when God visited his people from on high. And what all transpired at that location? Visitation of the Lord's presence. There was communion and a covenant feast of elder representatives with the Lord himself. There was assembly of the people for instruction. In the word of God, there was atoning con consecration. That is, the people with that sprinkled blood and that symbolic act were deemed worthy of an aspect of the presence of God or worthy 
of being with him without or near this mountain at least without being struck dead in a moment because a sacrifice had covered symbolically their sins. There was a divine revelation of the word of God written with his own finger in the Ten Commandments. There were provisions for the abiding presence of God with his people, leading them unto the fullness of the promised land, all the tabernacle and worship instructions to follow. So then we come to Psalm 123, and we ask this question. If any of these things were languishing in the days of the psalmist, where might he lift his eyes? If the people had drifted from the Lord, if he was in exile, if he didn't feel like he had entered the promised land, if the promises of redemption seemed yet on the horizon, where might he lift his eyes? And so he lifts to his eyes in lament to glory and cries out to the heavenly throne, the highest appeal, O Lord, would you visit us from on high? When the Lord visits us from on high, he visits us with atonement, with redemption, with Emmanuel fulfilled his condescension. In the days of the shepherds, in the days of Zechariah and Elizabeth, in the days of Anna and Simeon, in the days when the faithful, be they a remnant, cried out in anguish under the heavy hand of Rome and under the boot of their oppressor, they looked where? To the heavens. They asked for God to visit them from on high. And oh, how he answered their prayer. Where do we set our gaze? Where do we look? When Jesus Christ ascended the hill to preach the gospel, if you will, to deliver the message of his kingdom, he himself ascended a mountain in Matthew 5, verse 1. And thus follows three chapters of the most famous sermon in all history, the Sermon on the Mount. There's an interesting detail. Before he speaks, he ascends the mountain and he sits down. And what is the reaction of those who listened in chapter 7 as the sermon comes to a close? They are shocked and amazed because he speaks with authority, not like their religious leaders, scribes, or Pharisees. Do you see the fulfillment of Psalm 123? Jesus Christ assuming that seat of authority, visiting his people from on high. When he sat down on that place, in that mountain, it was an authoritative act. The judge, the prophet, the priest, the king is seated and has taken his place of rightful rule. Now heed and listen to his words. And so the people recognized his authority. But this was not the only picture of Christ fulfilling Psalm 123. But he was sent further still, and at the end of his ministry, in Acts chapter 1, where do we see him? We see him ascending to his seat of authority in the ascension, where he sits down, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 1, at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the highest appeal. This is where we direct our gaze. This is the fulfillment of the heart cry and lament of all the faithful, including Psalm 123. And Jesus Christ rules and reigns today. If we feel that any of the evidences of his rule or any of the provisions of his uh, salvation are lacking to some degree, where do we set our gaze? And what is the language of our lament? And where do we place our anguish and hope? We look to the heavens, recognizing that Jesus is coming again. And yes, there are sorrow and difficulties in this intermediate phase in between, but God also has a mission for us to tell others that Jesus Christ has taken his seat of authority, he is placing all his enemies under his feet. And there will come a day when the fullness of his elect has come in. 
And on that day, that day of reckoning, then a fullness of redemption will be complete and the final judgment will ensue and all things will be set right according to his plan. And at this point, it will be the fruition of the longing of our souls, joining the saints throughout all covenant history who groan with all creation in anguish and faith that upon the coming day of the Lord, redemption will be complete. Second major point, a servant perspective. Who are we as we offer our appeal to the Lord, our cry to Him, and plead for His mercy? We are but servants. Verse 2, the author explains or continues, notice the context, the language, the imagery he uses. Behold, the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. Is this an analogy you would use? It strikes me that these days, in the world in which we live, uh, analogies of master and slave or master, lord, and servant are not all that popular. Given the sordid history of our nation and our understanding of the same, so it doesn't should come as no surprise if preachers were more sensitive to the ear-tickling desires of a culture who is distracted by sin and their worldview is warped by pagan or secular modern ideals, that they would want to shy away from an analogy like servant to master. But I submit to you, rather, the Word of God stands as the standard. And if we're uncomfortable with this kind of language, it's not the Word of God that has a problem. It is us. Listen, the relationship of master to servant is one that if we lose, we lose the perspective of the gospel. Servants look to their master for two things primarily emphasized in this psalm. Number one, to their will. How would they have them act? Number two, to their provision. We are so distorted in our understanding of master-slave relationships that we only often think about the will of the master. And then in our rebellious ideas, or in some cases, a correct understanding of illegitimate tyranny in history, the whole idea is, how dare you exercise your will over me, and I'd like to be free from it. But there's an additional aspect to slave-master relationship in Scripture, and it is this. The master, the godly one, takes care of his servants. He provides for them. He is the one to whom they look not only to obey him, but also for their provision, for their shelter, for the security of his reign, for the wisdom of his rule. And that is a relationship, saints, that we have to our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Yes, human masters and lords are sinners and have failed in this regard, yet the analogy stands that in submission to the Lord, we look to the will of our perfect and authoritative and higher and glorious master, but we also look to him as our provision, the one who will provide, protect, and save us. <clears throat> as I mentioned, these metaphors may appear offensive to the sensibilities of our modern age of radical equality, or sometimes a technical term, egalitarianism. You know, in, the, in our war, in the modern era against hierarchy, you know, the fact that God has delegated his rule in, in, a, a, in, a, in an order where it includes leadership and those who would submit and follow, we have entertained the delusion that ideally there ought to be no submissive relationships in the human experience. This is not true, of course. 
this, this assumption speaks to our rebellious hearts, actually betraying original sin. Hath God said, you don't need to submit to your master. You can be your own master, deciding for yourself right and wrong, all the way back to the garden. This sin, of course, separates us from God himself, breaks the bond of relationship, and now it must be repaired. But what does repentance look like? Repentance is submission to God, and in submitting to him, we are restored to his created order. First of all, he is our master, he is our Lord, and then everything that flows from that <clears throat> in the order of our soul, created order of our souls, created order of our families, created order of churches, created order of society. This is the servant's perspective. I think we need a word on that of context, given the world in which we live. But the picture is more beautiful still, and let me expand this by some historical context. Reading again, verse 2, <clears throat> Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. In my reading this week, it came to my attention that it was customary in ancient times that servants be governed by nonverbal commands. And this close connection between master and servant allowed for desires to be fulfilled and directions to be given through communication as subtle as a glance, a gesture, or a facial expression. Behold, the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master. Just a slight gesture of the master might communicate to the servant, I know exactly what he wants me to do. A, a glance from him, a look, a countenance, cast his eyes toward, towards the master, or of the master toward the servant would communicate, oh, I'm in favor, he is pleased with me right now. This sort of nonverbal communication required something. Think about it. There had to be a close connection that allowed for this to be the reality between the relationship of master to servant. This communication, as subtle as a glance, a gesture, or facial expression, was impossible unless there was exceptional attentiveness. And this attentiveness was cultivated by the closest of relationships and discreet knowledge of the master's will. So a servant who loved and was dedicated to his master would become a student, would devote himself to knowing his master. And as he did so, his relationship would grow to such a point that he understood his master's will and his master's concern for him by just a gesture or a glance. How well do you know your Lord? The application writes itself, does it not? How well do we know our master? Uh, in your mind's eye, you could do this if you want to later in your own study time, but uh, think of a spectrum line, right? You can draw it on the paper in your mind. And on one side is like oblivious, <clears throat> a spectrum line. On one side, it's uh, ignorance and obliviousness. And then you go across that spectrum line to the other side. And on that other side, you could have a deep and abiding relationship, yielding sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, what he commands us to do, and the assurances of his word. So think of that line there, from the casual and oblivious to the deep and abiding. And you see the progress of sanctification is to move us from that casual 
and oblivious. I don't really know or care or have any idea or maybe straight rebellion to the unbeliever. When we come to faith in Christ, we first bow and submit to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, and then devote ourselves by turning the eyes of us, his servants, to our Master and Lord, just as the eyes of the maidservant would be fixed upon the hand of her mistress so that the smallest inclination and uh, paid by this closest of relationship, they would know exactly the will and the assurances of their master and their keeper. As we see this, this direction that sanctification might yield, we are, as we pay close attention to the word of God, as we seek the Lord's face in prayer, as we devote ourselves to the spiritual disciplines that he instructs and lays out for us, what are we doing? We're deepening our relationship with our master. We are hopefully, as the Lord uses these things, moving toward more faithful and trusting servants who love their masters and devote themselves to their desires. And this yields both obedience in our lives, but also assurance of provision. Not only do we look to our master to know what he would have us do, but we look to our master to save us. And that's what Psalm 123 communicates to us. This is, in verse 2, the servant's perspective. Let us close this morning in verses 3 and 4 by considering our saving hope. Again, Psalm 123 poetically pictures, it features this highest appeal, the throne in heaven, the servant's perspective, our relationship to the one who sits on that throne, and finally, the essence, the foundation of our saving hope. Again, verses 3 and 4, our author sings, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Where is this saving hope to be found? Again, in a word, mercy. The author knows that material comfort often breeds scorn. You know, we wonder what is God's intention that we would have to work as hard as we do and sometimes face all the different stressors in life and the challenges that we have. Will in part a reason for the way he has ordered, engineered, and designed our lives is that we would not forget that we are ultimately dependent on his mercy alone. The psalmist recognizes this, and he also recognizes the flip side. He says we have had more than enough of, the, of contempt. He knows that those who don't sense their own desperation have a tendency to be self-satisfied. And if they are self-satisfied, this material comfort, this sense of fullness, albeit superficial, often breeds scorn. Religion is a crutch for a feeble mind, the atheists used to tell us. There was that movement in American culture of sort of like radical and aggressive atheism, a movement which is dead, by the way, which I'm happy to proclaim. These guys don't hold the same influence as they used to anymore. They were the fools who used to say that all wars were motivated by religion and that there would be peace on earth and goodwill to men when everybody would leave their religious ideas aside. And were they successful in doing that for themselves or influencing the people to do so? No, we are inescapably religious and we will just exchange one God for another. And the God that the new atheists exchanged was themselves. And, it proved, and, it, 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 and over time, as they proved to be fools, people grew dissatisfied with themselves as God, didn't really want to worship uh, Dawkins or Hitchens anymore. 
And so their influence fell off in the precipice of the West and so forth, which I'm happy to announce. But why, what gave them this pride and this hubris, this sense of self-satisfaction to declare religion not just dead or not just uh, irrelevant, but harmful? Well, it was the contempt of the proud. It was the scorn of those who were at ease. It was the ones who are deluded by their self-satisfied uh, uh, station in life and the blindness of their own uh, of, their, of their own ideas that caused them to disregard the very thing upon which the future of all humanity hinges, the mercy of the Creator. Material comfort can often breed scorn. Pride can often breed contempt for the meek and lowly. What, uh, what is the scorn of those who are at ease? Well, the self-satisfied do not cry out for mercy, they do not cling in desperation to the promise of salvation. However, if we are sinners, and all men are, then all sources of hope are ultimately rooted in mercy. Is there hope for the sinner short of mercy? By definition, no. And any hope that is held out for the sinner short of mercy or not founded upon the mercy of the Lord is an idol, a foolish delusion. I passed out, and there's more if you didn't get one and might need one or want one. Uh, We've been going through it with our family, and it's basically a liturgy for Advent. And there's a series of readings for each day of December leading up to Christmas time. And you'll find in there a category of liturgy that is fairly common in Protestant circles, which is confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Beautiful prayers written by churchmen through the ages are recorded in that book, and then often the assurance of pardon is directly from the scriptures. It's the uh, confidence that comes from God's word saying that if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, then your sins are atoned for. There is a certain usefulness in liturgy, that is the order of worship, to include these elements insofar as they hold us accountable to mercy, hold us accountable to remembering that we are absolutely and always dependent on the mercy of the Lord. Think of, the, think of the gospel basics. You, a sinner, transgressing God's holy law, stand before a holy God, guilty, Your Honor, guilty as charged. When you are aware of your sin and the preaching of the law brings it to your attention, you know you have no excuse. No one has an excuse. The scriptures say as much. You are all, we are all, one day, if not sooner than later, reduced like Isaiah before that throne room vision to brokenness and desperation. I am an unworthy, I'm unworthy to stand in your presence. I am a man, a woman of unclean heart and lips. Save me. And as Isaiah stands before that temple vision, before the throne of God, he recognizes that his life and his future hinges upon the mercy of the Lord. And that mercy is extended to him in that vision in, in the form of a coal which touches his lips, uh, as if to say the sin is burned out by the, by the sovereign grace and mercy of God, and he is consecrated, that sin cauterized, no longer a malignant force within him. Now he is free to do the will of his master as he grows in his relationship with him. How can we hold ourselves accountable to mercy? Well, you might read daily, a confession of sin, and an assurance of pardon, something else you might do. If you pray out loud, try to listen to your own prayer. 
as your children pray out loud. Listen to the tone of their prayer. Check that tone. Is it a plea for mercy? Underneath our prayers, we should have this sense, without you, I am nothing and have nothing, but with you, I have hope. As we listen to ourselves pray and offer our requests before the Lord, we should guard against language or a tone or an attitude or heart that would be more in the deserve or demand category. And then move ourselves or conform our thoughts and our desire and our appeals and our prayers to something like Psalm 123. In so many words, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. In this second phrase in verse 3, the psalmist is honest about the present threat. He appeals to mercy as his saving hope, but he also, he also references two things that he's hoping to be saved from. They are mercy delayed and his dependence. So what is the present threat? Well, he's small and insignificant, and there's been to some degree a delay in the mercy that he needs. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. We've had more than enough of contempt. We're growing weary under this lack of mercy. We are desperate and cry out because we need you to intervene. Oh, would you visit us from on high and restore us to that relationship we once enjoyed fresh off Sinai with the word of God in our hands and the consecrated blood on our shoulders and the schematics for temple worship given to us. O come, O come, Emmanuel, have mercy upon us, right? This is the anguish, this is the heart, this is lament, the longing of the soul of the psalmist in his present travail, joining the groaning of all creation in anguish and in faith that the coming day of the Lord would bring redemption and redemption's completion. Him and all the Lords will set aright on his glorious day. Mercy delayed and his dependence upon him. We think about Luke 18, 1 through 8, the importunate widow. It's a parable that Jesus gives. Although this widow has not been given justice, she continues persistently to make her appeal. And of course, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. With the ungodly and sinful uh, master who is in charge and has some delegated authority to dispense judgment, if he we will receive over and over and over again this cry for mercy from the widow and finally relent and give. It's a picture of how much more will our perfect and awesome judge in heaven who is immutable in power and perfect in his holiness and enjoys that seat of authority untouchable in the highest of places. How much more will he not answer his people when they cry and that heart of sincere lament for the longing of their souls to be satisfied with the fullness of his redemption and progress to that end. Mary sang prophetically over her Messiah's son of his power to exalt the lowly and humble the proud. Luke 2, 46-55, I adapted the prayer for my sermon this morning from that passage. Mary, she was familiar with this commoner plight, she, like all who suffered under the heavy hand of occupiers at the time, knew what it was like to have mercy delayed and to be dependent on others and to cry out for mercy. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in, my, in God my Savior, 
this upon the promise that she would bear the Son of God in her very womb. He has looked, she says, verse 48, upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And here she speaks of his mercy, verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Let me give you one other case in point to close this message. Our worship text today, as we gathered in his name that Joel read for us, was in Luke 2, you can turn there, 18 through 14, 8, excuse me, through 14. In this section, this very popular, very well-known segment of the story of Christmas unfolds in glorious revelation. In the same region, verse 8, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. The title of my sermon today, and a suggested title for Psalm 123, or at least a way to think about it in application, is Shepherd's Lament. I was thinking to myself, what if I were to write a movie on the Christmas story? and give you a possible opening. The script might open with a scene. The scene might open on the rolling hills on the outskirts of a distant village. This distant village, of course, is Bethlehem, visible only by the faint uh, flickering of lamps in the windows. But these lamps, they bow to the majesty of the starry expanse in the heavens on that night of Advent anticipation. A shepherd on the fields, his flocks gathered around him, casts his eyes to the horizon skies. He casts his gaze to this starry expanse, and I imagine him singing in a mournful melody, Psalm 123. You've perhaps heard those ancient songs where you hear them and that melody, I can't sing for you, I don't know any by heart, but there's something about that melody, that imperceptible beauty of poetry, ancient as it is, that ties your soul to the confession and emotions of people that long preceded you. So imagine that shepherd. To you I lift up my eyes, O you enthroned in the heavens. Behold as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master. This shepherd sings. What happens next? As he lifts his gaze to the skies, suddenly the quiet of nightfall is exploded by radiant light and a full-throated angelic chorus as the windows of heaven are thrown open just long enough to announce the birth of the Messiah and to showcase heaven's armies worshiping Jesus Christ. This is what happened on that glorious night. Psalm 123 is an anthem channeling the cries for salvation of those of low estate, just like the shepherds, just like Mary just like Anna and Simeon waiting in the temple, just like you and me, if you understand your plight before him today. Imagine the psalm of ascent on the lips of the shepherds in the waning days of Advent, awaiting the Messiah, the incarnation, to condescend. History tells us that these shepherds were among the despised underclasses of society in the days of Herod, Roman occupation, and spiritual darkness. Where was a lowly shepherd to lift his eyes of hope as he tended his animals, perhaps for temple sacrifice, a Sabbath ritual 
he seldom had the privilege of witnessing, given the demands of his occupation. Where was a lowly shepherd to lift his eyes? Psalm 123 tells us, Lift up your eyes to the one who is enthroned in the heavens. And as he did so, singing that song, as we imagine, the heavens broke open to announce that the second person of the Trinity, who forever was glorified with the Father, took on flesh and stooped low. God had visited us from on high. And in this lowly manger in Bethlehem was the hope for mercy, that Jacob's ladder, heaven's staircase, touching ground with the incarnation of the Son of God, held out hope to shepherds and the lowly everywhere that Emmanuel, God with us, is Jesus Christ, our sovereign Savior. Jesus, Lord, at his birth. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the testimony of Scripture, which unites with the amen of our heart when you speak to us the glories of redemption and awaken our souls to their truth, understanding, and application. I pray today, as far as your word has been rightly divided, that it would result in a similar effect as the shepherds on that first Christmas evening, that we would tell the truth of Jesus Christ to all who will listen. Give us grace to tell our children. Give us grace to share with our families. Give us a word and wisdom to those beyond whoever you might lead us to, that the message might get out in our day as it did then. Unto us is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And though unexpected in the eyes of man, nevertheless fulfilling every last detail of the law, he was born in the fullness of time to be our holy and incredible and awesome, majestic and merciful Savior, satisfying the demands of the covenant that God might have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us and save us from the contempt of the proud. Save us, we pray, Lord, from the contempt and the pride of our own hearts and save us, we pray, from the contemptuous pride of the world in which we live and save us according to our Messiah, Jesus Christ, and grant us grace in this time to look to Him and join the groaning of creation as we rejoice in faith, even though sorrow may tend us on the way that one day in His second coming, redemption will be complete. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.